If you would please turn in your Bibles to, again, the Gospel of um, Luke and the 14th chapter. We're going to reading 12 through 13 this morning for our text. Please stand for the reading of God's Word, as this was a practice of the people of old, out of respect for the Holy Scriptures, which is the Word of God. Let's hear the Word of the Lord. And he said to the, to the man who had invited him, When you have a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. When you give a party, when you have a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please be seated. Let's go to God in prayer. Please pray for me as I preach this text. Pray for yourselves as you sit on the proclamation of this word. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the scriptures. This is the word of the Lord, preserved throughout the ages, and that what we have is truth. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with me as I preach this portion of your word this morning. Be with the congregation as they hear the word, open up our hearts, O God, to be instructed from the scriptures by your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In this section of Luke's Gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ has been dealing with humility. In the previous parable, he addressed the guest of the house. In this parable, he addresses the host of the house. And listen to this. It is only when a man is humble, meek, not self-serving, not self-centered, that he'll be willing to trust God and to seek to do what God wants him to do concerning obedience to him, trust in him, and love to others. The arrogant man, the proud man, will not do that. Indeed, I would say the arrogant man, the proud man, cannot do that. And so as we look at this section, we began and we ask a question, why has Jesus been invited to this party? We look at the above verses to come to the answer to that question in verse 1. On the Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler, a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Uh, So he is a special guest here at this man's house. He has been invited. You know, everybody knows who Christ is. So here he goes to be and have a lunch with these people. Notice the next verse, verse 2. And behold, there was a man before him who had a dropsy. Uh, that's edema. He had uh, a fluid in his tissues. And then the question is, why did a Pharisee who would be concerned about cleanliness invite this man who was sick, who possibly had even festering sores on his skin from the fluid, why would he invite him to his house? It was uncommon because Jews kept themselves from those who were sick. So why did this man invite Jesus? And this man also invited this fellow who had edema. Well, Christ has been set up, you see. Uh, Verse 3, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Here's this man that's sick. 
Here's the great physician who can heal people. Here's the Pharisees, as Christ said. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? You talk about blindness. Jesus could make this man well. And their concern is what he does according to their mandates, their laws, their rules. Not concerned about compassion. Not concerned about the power of Christ. Not concerned about who he is. But does he do and follow the rules that we have set in place? And so it happens. Uh, Jesus takes him and he heals him and he sends him away. Why was Jesus invited to this man's house? Well, it wasn't because he was loved. It wasn't because they cared for him. Perhaps they were curious about him, but they were watching him closely, it says here in the text. They were observing Jesus closely. What is this man going to do with this diseased man? Will he heal on the Sabbath? Well, as we go through this text this morning, it happens to see, and please hear this, holding to the reality of the resurrection of the Christian holding to the reality of the resurrection of the Christian will encourage him to be engaged in ministry when it costs, when it's not noticed, when it's difficult. Because you know there is a resurrection and God will bless us accordingly on that day. I don't know if you have trouble with the word rewards in the Bible, or rewards and thinking about rewards. Well, it's in the Scriptures. It's in the Bible. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. So again, holding to the reality of the resurrection encourages Christians to be faithful in deeds of kindness and mercy, since we know that at the resurrection, God will deal with us accordingly. Three things this morning. The first thing, humility enables us to care for the needy. The second thing, humility enables us to put aside self-interest. And the third thing is, humility enables us to engage, be engaged in deeds of mercy as we consider the justification of, or the justice of God at the resurrection. Well, the first thing, humility enables us to care for the needy. I don't need to tell you this. All of you know this. You are students of the Bible. But the Bible puts a great deal of emphasis on the necessity of personal humility. The Bible puts a great emphasis upon the necessity of personal humility. But you know, and I know, that that nemesis of old expresses itself in our lives often. Do you like to be corrected? No. You know why? Because you're prideful. You don't want to be telling somebody telling you that you're wrong, even if you are. You don't want to hear it because there's pride there. When there is pride there, you will not listen to correction. And we think about this. There are so many things that tend to boost our pride. So many things in your life that tends to boost your pride. The advantages God has given to us. The one who is proud of his money. The one who is proud of their intellect. Uh, the one who is proud of her beauty. Narcissus. Uh, the Greek and Greek mythology who found himself so attractive he stared at himself in the water and uh, until he died. And the story goes, a flower sprung at a place called a narcissist. A flower came forth from where he was. 
This is the one who is proud of uh, her beauty or his handsomeness. We can say this, don't criticize the ladies. And all of these are advantages uh, that God has given. They're blessings that God has given to you, that God has given to people who have these things. And rather than pride in the heart, there ought to be gratitude. But how often we give ourselves the credit for where we are when we have things that are valuable, when there's success in our lives, we credit ourselves so often. Rather than having gratitude for God and being grateful to Him for the things He has done for us. And we should daily thank the Lord for His blessings, and we should seek to it that we try to give, use the things that He's given us for His glory. Thanking God daily for the things you have that are blessings, that are good, and trying to use them and asking God to help you use them without pride for the good of others. And if you can't do that, if you can't do that, get rid of it. If you can't do that, get rid of it. If you have something in your life that is a source of pride and you simply can't let go of that pride because of your accomplishment, because of whatever you happen to have, and you can't use it for the good of others, you'd be better off getting rid of it. In order that you may not have that anchor of chain holding you down, shackling you to this world. So we have advantages and we tend to become intoxicated with how fantastic we are when we don't seek to hold those in humility. And there are accomplishments that we have as well that can be a source of boosting us up in our arrogance. The things that you've done in your life, and you've done them well, and you have been recognized for it, well, that also can be a source of, of, of arrogance, uh, an, an award that you've won at work. Uh, publishing a book and it being number one on the New York Times bestseller list. All these things that people do, that people can do, a beautiful home because of your brilliance in business. Well, I want to read something to you. Uh, and we uh, can learn from this. Uh, it, it, the things that we have that are successful, the things that we have that are grand, the things that we have that we have accomplished should never be a source of arrogance and pride. Listen to this. Nebuchadnezzar. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still on the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place shall be in the beast of the field. Why did he have that attitude? Arrogance. Failing to understand that the positions he was in, the place he held in his life, the place he had in history was all because of the working of God. God's sovereign. God blesses. And as he blesses, our response should be gratitude. And as we have success in the things we're planning, we should have gratitude. As we have success in business, our reaction should be gratitude to God. And then saying, how can I use this for the glory of the Lord in my life? And then even our knowledge of God can become a source of pride. I love the Reformed faith. I love the Southern Presbyterians. I love the Puritans. 
I think that Reformed doctrine is the most closely, consistently uh, biblical. I believe that deeply. Otherwise, I would not embrace the things of the Reformed faith, which I think basically are biblical. And so our knowledge of God, if you know more Scripture than others, you have memorized more than others, you understand the Word of God more than others, it can become a source of pride for you. If you want to see pride among Christians, go to a session meeting. Go to a presbytery meeting. Go to general assembly. And you'll see it. Of all places where there should be humility, it's a church court. But you'll see it, and I've seen it. I'm not talking about our session per se, but I've seen it where it was nasty. Where there was a man in Mississippi that was driven out of his church because of arrogance and pride. So if you want to see it, go to a meeting of a church court where they should be characterized by humility. And so what we find here is that which should humble us, that which should humble us before the Lord and before one another. Knowledge of Scripture, understanding of who Jesus is, understanding what He's done for us. Those things should humble us greatly. And yet they can become, by Satan's deceitfulness and by his working, a source of arrogance and pride. Well, let's consider the problem of pride biblically. What's so big? What's the big deal about it? We might as well say, what's the big deal about adultery? What's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about stealing? What's the big deal about that? If you have to ask that question, you need a lot of education, a lot of training, a lot of teaching. So we ask, uh, well, what's God's attitude toward it? Well, he hates it. And hear this. Pride is behind every sin you have ever committed in one way or another. Look at the garden. What motivated Adam and Eve to do what they did and rebel against God? It was pride. You won't die. You'll be like God. You'll be like God, knowing good from evil. And so they had that desire, and they did that, and you know what happened. They, were, they failed and were kicked out of the garden, the Tower of Babel. Let's make, it, make a name for ourselves. Let's build a tower so we'll never be moved from this place. And so they did. And you know what happened? God brought judgment against them. But it was pride that was behind that. Uh, Numbers 10, uh, Numbers 20 and verse 10, Moses was told by God, this is the second time, the first time God told him to strike the rock with his staff, which he did, and water came out. The second time God said, speak to the rock in front of the people. Just speak to it, what I'm telling you to do, and water will come out. What does he do? He speaks and he strikes it with his, with his rod. He ignored what God said to him. So what he did there, he was concerned to bring glory to himself. Even Moses suffered from the problem of pride. And you know what happened because of that? He couldn't go into the promised land. It says he saw it from afar. God let him look at it. But he couldn't go in it because of pride, because of arrogance. You read in the scriptures that God buried Moses somewhere. God himself buried him somewhere. And so, again, pride is behind so many sins. David, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, there was pride in that. Full of his own self, I'm the king of Israel. I can have what I want. Who's going to tell me what to do? 
And so you know what he did. He brought this man's wife over, had relations with her. She became with, she came with a child, and he had her husband murdered. A man after God's own heart. If David could do that. A man after God's own heart, you can do similar things. You can fall into any sin. Don't ever think you can't. You've lost part of the battle if you ever think that. You've lost it. You can commit any sin there is to commit. Don't think you can't. Because you can. So the problem of pride considered biblically, the problem of it considered practically, pride sets one person against another. Pride spoils relationships. Pride ruins marriages. The, pride per, the prideful person does not want to admit they're wrong. They do not want to apologize even when they know they are wrong. Pride is toxic to the soul. It's poison to your Christian walk. The Bible speaks of it again and again and again. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's spoken of again, again, and again. Why? Because it blinds us to our needs. It blinds us to our own sin. And so it is poison to the soul. And, you know, uh, believers must develop humility in their lives and maintain it if they would live faithfully before the Lord. Philippians 2 and verse 3, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as better than yourself. Do we do that? Do nothing from rivalry, wanting position in the church or whatever, or conceit, but in humility count others as more important than yourselves. The word count here is important. It shows us that to accomplish what is said in this verse, you have to think. You have to reason. You have to think as a Christian. You have to think as one being informed by the Word of God. You have to count uh, it's important here. It is uh, that it means to, to judge, to esteem, uh, 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 to calculate uh, by great effort. This person I will consider as better than myself. That doesn't mean to develop, brother, this self-esteem problem. That's not what this is talking about. That's not what this means at all. What it means is, that we count others as more important than ourselves and we judge to esteem them and support them highly because it's pleasing to God. And you think about this. Uh, Let me read this to you. Uh, What this says here is not something we tend to do. Do you get mad in the church when you don't get your way? Have you ever gotten mad when you didn't get your way? Or at home, or at work, uh, then this is not something you are practicing. I agree. There are things where we take stands and we do not budge. We do not budge on those things. We stand and we die upon those things. We do not budge on the doctrine of justification by faith. We don't budge on that. But so many things that divide us are things that aren't that important. If you get right down to it, they're simply not that important. I don't know any church, any biblical church, that is split. Over the doctrine of justification. They split over design. They split over colors. They split over times. Things that just are not that important. 
So he says again here in Philippians, uh, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Well, if it's something that we tend not to do and it's difficult to do, how do we accomplish it then? Let me read this to you. This virtue consists in estimating ourselves according to the truth. This virtue, accounting okay, others is more important than myself, consists in estimating ourselves in accordance to the truth. It is a willingness to take the place which we ought to take in the sight of God and man and having a low esteem of our own importance and character, uh, which the truth about our, uh, and the truth about our own insignificance as creatures and vileness, uh, vileness as sinners would produce in us a willingness to perform lowly and humble offices that may benefit others. None of this has to do with self-image. It has to do with who you are in reality before God. And that we deserve nothing from God but his condemnation and wrath. That's what we deserve. That's the word deserve. That's what we deserve. No blessings. No graces. Nothing but condemnation and God's wrath. And so it is that we are in positions in the church, in positions in our lives, by God's working. And God calls us again and again to humility. For he is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, we are to seek to develop that in our lives. And I'm not saying we cannot seek to be productive or to accomplish. We should accomplish. And whenever you're trying to accomplish something, you ought to do the best you possibly can. Why? Because the Bible says so. I know the first catechism, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We all know that, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether therefore you eat or you drink, whatsoever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do it with God in mind that I'm pleasing God. I'm seeking to please him in these things. And you ask for God's help all along the way as you're laboring, as you're working, And as you achieve success and hopefully great success in your life, it is that God has blessed. It is that the Lord has heard and has blessed. Well, uh, as uh, stated, Jesus uh, continues dealing with the subject of humility, but now he addresses the host, the man who invited him. Um, They were watching Jesus closely. Well, Jesus is watching them as well. I'd love to have been there. I really would. Or just standing in the doorway and see Christ sitting there with these people and seeing those arrogant, self-righteous Pharisees judging Jesus. Can you imagine the, the foolishness of that? So Christ observes them. And I'm sure he sees this man come into the house and go up to the head of the table and have to ask him to please take your seat in the back. This is not for you. This is for someone else, reserved for someone else. But Christ also looks around. And we gather from what he says here when he addresses this man that those who are present are other Pharisees, his friends, people in positions of power, and wealthy people. They're the who's who of Jerusalem. That's who's in this man's house. That's who he invited to the dinner here. So Christ says to him in this verse, um, sorry, I flipped back over to the book of Matthew. In chapter 14, 
When you have a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you, but invite the poor, the cripple, the lame, and the blind. So Christ then is saying to this man, the next time you have a party, have a different guest list. Now, the consequence of it is they can't pay you back. These people he's describing here, they can't do anything for you. They are not able to pay you back. Uh, They uh, can't help you. They have no political position. They have no political power. They have no money. But the people that he invited can pay him back. Well, how? Well, they may have a a great dinner party for uh, his daughter as she's about to get married. Uh, they may know some politician to get him a job in some position in the city because he knows them. These people are all connected. That's the idea. They're all connected. And they can wash one another's hands, so to speak. One hand washes another hand. This is the same thing. Well, that's what's happening here. But we need to understand this, that Christ is not forbidding here in this text having family over, having friends over, having neighbors over, that are wealthy, wealthy and that have accomplished something. He's not, he's not forbidding that in this text, not at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, J.C. Ryle says this, uh, the precept contained in these words must uh, uh, be interpreted and con- with considerable limitation. It is certain that our Lord did not intend to forbid men showing any hospitality to relatives and friends. He also said the lesson of this passage is plain and distinct. The Lord would have us care for our poor brethren and to help them according to our power. As you are able, help them. And do we do that? Do we help those that we have the ability to help and we do so gladly? John Calvin said this, Those who think this is an absolute condemnation of entertainments given by relatives and friends to each other take away a part of civility among men. I love the way Calvin put that. It is, only, uh, it is not only unfeeling and barbarous to exclude relatives from the uh, hospitality table and to class them as strangers. It is barbarous to exclude family, he says here, and count them as strangers. So that's not what he's saying here in the text. What Jesus is doing is trying to emphasize to this man, consider the people that you always hang with, that you always have with you, and consider those you never have with you. That's what he's saying here to this man as he says this. So what Jesus is doing is forbidding him to ignore the needs of the poor. And humility is necessary in order to care for the needs of those who have less than we do. These are people, listen to this, and consider our own age. These are people nobody cares about. Nobody really cares about them. They're poor. They're sick, and nobody really cares about them. So humility enables us to put put aside self-interest. Who shall he invite? Well, uh, the poor. Oh, me. I I don't like poor people. I don't like, they're not educated, and I just don't like them. I don't want to have them. I'm I'm uncomfortable with them. The cripple. No, 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 no. I can't be around people that have problems like that. I, I can't stand to look at them. I just I feel uncomfortable. I can't do it. No, the lame. Um, no, I don't think so. 
I'm comfortable with these people that are here. I know these people. They're wealthy and powerful. I know them. Uh, well, Jesus said, uh, also invite the blind. Jesus, you just do not know what you're asking. Listen to this. These are the people who would be on the streets in Jerusalem begging. They'd be begging. They can't work. Uh, because they cannot walk, because they cannot use their hands, because they cannot see, they can't work. And if people in those days do not have parents or family or friends or somebody to take care of them, they were on the streets and they were begging. We read about that all the time in the Bible. Beggars on the streets trying to get money, trying to get something so they can buy food. They didn't just give it to them. And it's true that people that are challenged like that can make others uncomfortable. These are the kind of people that when they walk in public, people stare at them. These are the kind of people, when people see them walk by, they whisper to the person next to them, what do you think's wrong with them? What do you think happened to them? So pitiful. So, so pitiful, they say. These are the people that gawk and stare and then don't care. That's the people he's describing here in the text as he talks to this man. You have forgotten the group of folks. Here are your friends. Here's the wealthy. Here are the politicians. Here are the successful people, the beautiful people, as they are called. But Christ said, you've forgotten a whole class of people. The poor. The sick. The needy. What are you doing to help them? What are you doing to see to it that their needs are met? What are you doing to help them to understand that they are loved and they are cared for? That's the question that Jesus brings to this man. And so the consequence of inviting these people, they can't help you. They can't repay you. Uh, They cannot do anything politically for you. And you can see why to be involved like this in the lives of others to be caring for people like this, and to be helping people like this, you can see how you have to be a selfless individual to do this. This is not the place. These are not the people that are the beautiful people. These are not the people that are well-dressed. These are not the people that uh, are so healthy in their bodies and their minds and is desirable to be with them. These are not those kind of people at all that Christ is talking about here in this text. These are the kind of people that if you take them out, you may have to help them eat because they can't use their hands. If you've ever been out to eat with a quadriplegic, you feed them. You feed them. You hold their glass up for them so they can drink out of a straw. That's what it takes. And people that have that type of challenge, love to have people be with them, love to go out to eat with people. But the person that takes them has to be willing to do that. You give them food with your hand, if it's to know what kind of food it is. If you feed them with a fork, you be careful you don't stab them. And then you wipe their mouth. And you talk 
and fellowship with them. But that's what it means. That's Christ is talking about that type of thing of helping those who have need. And uh, again, the objections, well, do you know how much money it'll cost me to have these people over? Have any idea what this kind of meal cost? These people, I can get something out of. They'll, they'll pay me back some way or another. But these poor people, they can't help me. I'm going to spend money and not get it back, and I can't even take it off of my income tax. So don't expect me to be involved in helping these kind of people. It just is not worth it financially for me to do that. Hopefully, we would never say that. And hopefully, this man that Jesus is talking to would not say that as he tells. And this is a parable, but it's, 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 live, it's live action, so to speak. These things are going on while Christ is there with them, while he's talking to them. And so uh, the selfless man is one who will take notice and care. And he sees when he looks at a special needs person, he doesn't look beyond them, but someone who has difficulties that are no fault of their own. No fault of their own. And let me tell you, people like that bear God's image. And they want to be loved. And they want to be taken care of. And they want to enjoy company. They want to be taken care of because they cannot take care of themselves. There are things that they simply cannot do on their own. So what Christ does here is stir us up to think about this. What is our attitude toward them? Are we being involved with helping them? And the hour is hastening on. So uh, the humble man gathers motivation for helping when it's uncomfortable by remembering the resurrection of the dead. You see what Christ does here? He takes us to a point in history where though nobody else has seen what you've done, nobody else has seen what you've gone through in helping people, but God does. And God doesn't forget. And so what Jesus says here in this text, uh, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, did Jesus know what he was talking about? Do you think he knew about the resurrection? Do you think he understood those things? Yes, you know he did. It's because of Christ's resurrection that we will be raised from the dead as well. So Jesus says, as you are engaged in the events of this life, as you are engaged in the business of this life, remember that what you don't receive here, God sees what you're doing and God will repay you for the work that you've done. And what a great blessing to have God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Now, are we saying then that your attitude doesn't matter, that your motivation doesn't matter? It matters a great deal. You remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? Everybody was selling property, bringing the money instead of the disciples' feet. Here's what I got. Here's what I got. Here's what I got. And everybody's going, wow, boy, they're generous. I really like them. What a great example they are of charity. Well, Ananias and Sapphira come in, and they laid money at the feet of Peter. They sold a piece of property, and uh, Peter says, is this what you got for it? Yeah. Is this all of it? Yeah. Well, it's not. You haven't lied to me. You've lied to God. You know what happens? falls down dead, and they carry the person out. Now, what was their motivation? 
It was to be seen as being generous by others when all the time there was a certain amount of greed there. Now, had they said this, well, we got $100,000, but here's 50. We're going to keep the rest of it. That would have been fine. Okay? It's your money. You can do that if you want to. But when they said, we got $100,000, but we get 50, this is all we got, they're lying. So motivation is important as we help people, as we do things for people. Motivation is very, very important. And I'm going to end with this, because it's not after. Let's get that clock down. Somebody take that clock down. We have to remember that there is a resurrection from the dead that is coming. It's the last day of history as we know it. We know it's going to happen because the Bible tells us so and Jesus told us so. Melinda Melinda read something to me the other day. I can't remember who said it. I think it was John MacArthur. But he said this. Worry is evidence that you doubt and don't trust the sovereignty, the providence, or the promises of God. As believers, if we really trust the Lord, we're not going to worry. Not saying we won't care. We will care. We should be caring people. But we won't be fretful. And so we have God's promises here of the resurrection from the dead when all things will be made new. The people... Challenged now? Will not be challenged then. The blind will not be blind. The deaf will not be deaf. And the cripple will walk. Thus is the love of our God and the power of Christ as he brings forth his people from the grave. Do you believe that? Does your faith take you to that point? you believe that? Yes, I believe that Christ is coming, and I believe the dead are going to be raised imperishable. If you hold to that, it makes this world a lot easier to take. And its challenges and its difficulties a whole lot easier to take. So do you know Jesus? If you're not trusting Christ, I would urge you to faith this morning in Jesus. And that promise is yours as well. But if you're trusting Jesus and you just have a little bit lacking of trust in the resurrection to come, then come to repentance because Jesus did not lie to us. Not one time. Let's pray.